Hi, everyone. Welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to this year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rokraut. And I'm Sophia Simonello. And on today's pod, we will be celebrating Black History Month. We've already discussed a couple of this year's awards films on previous podcasts, including Defy Bloods and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. So this episode, we will be focusing on One Night in Miami and Judas and the Black Messiah. I think that both of them are really excellent, actually, if we're thinking about the movies that came out in 2020 and some of the films that are in the awards conversation this year. So I'm excited to talk about both of these. Ah. You brothers, you could move mountains without ah. lifting a finger. Ah. Minister Malcolm X. Good news, the chariot is coming. Ah. Who's the greatest? Yeah. That's right. Jim Brown takes ah. the ball. Your record is going to stand ah. the test of time. All together, yeah. The entire city of Miami is celebrating. I'm the new heavyweight champion of the world, and I don't even have a scratch on my face. Oh my goodness. Cash. Cash. Why am I so pretty? (laughs) To get started with One Night in Miami, this premiered at the Venice Film Festival, and we actually watched it. It's like October, right? Yeah, we watched it in the fall, and then it came out on Prime um, Christmas Day. So a lot of people, I think, got to see it. Hopefully then, but if you haven't seen it yet, One Night in Miami is a fictional account of an incredible night where icons Muhammad Ali, Sam Cooke, Malcolm X, and Jim Brown gathered to discuss their roles in the civil rights movement and the cultural upheaval of the 60s. It was directed by the great Regina King, who we love here, and it was written by Kemp Powers. It stars Kingsley Benadir, Leslie Odom Jr., Eli Gorey, and Aldous Hodge. What did you think of One Night in Miami? I think this is an extraordinary feature directorial debut by Regina King. Yes, we absolutely love her. I saw her recently in a pic that I will mention later in the pod, which was great. I think she's been so present for so long. And to see her transition into this directorial role is really exciting because I think what she's made is so unique. It could have been done by so many different people, directors, white directors. And I think what she adds is magnificent. And hearing her talk through all of the press junkets this season, I think has been exciting with bringing this historical moment to life. I think both of these movies, I will say that I didn't know the historical context to them. And One Night in Miami in particular tells the story of these men that aren't typically shown. Yeah, I thought that Regina King's direction was perfect for this film. So she's directed episodes of TV before. I know that she's done episodes of Scandal. One of them is actually one of my favorite episodes of the show. So like, she definitely has a lot of experience directing, but to have this be your feature film is so impressive because I think what she does, and I know we've mentioned this on previous episodes, but this is a play adaptation. And I think Mm -hmm. that she actually makes it very cinematic, as cinematic as play adaptations can be. And I really like how she chooses to open the story. We get to know the four men through their own kind of individual vignettes. And I think, too, taking these iconic men in history and showing their stories through conversations with each other and through the pretty heavy topics that they discuss is really important. But what I also really loved that she did was this movie is really funny. 
that was what really stood out to me actually on rewatch was just how funny some of the line readings are Mm -hmm. and some of the performances, especially I think through Aldous Hodge who plays Jim Brown. Mm -hmm. But I love how at the end when we have Sam Cooke's A Change Is Gonna Come and that whole montage, it's really smart. And it again just shows her great choices as a director. I think that final sequence in particular is so powerful and it ends the film on such a high note of all of the topics and conversations culminating in this final moment and song. And I would like to see the transition from screenplay on stage to film because Mm -hmm. I read that Regina gave the actors a lot of space to use their performances and kind of play with the script. But also I feel like the screenplay would be pretty tight in capturing these people and what they were doing at the time. And I think that specifically to me, the screenplay reminded me of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom because of how, yes, that was also a screenplay. And maybe that's part of the parallel. But I think having these intimate conversations flows really well in both films. Yeah. And I think too, like I brought up the last time when we have three play adaptations in the running with The Father and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom in addition to this one. I think that those two definitely rely on strong performances and great dialogue. But this one, I really was just so impressed by some of the choices that Regina King made. Like there's this one part, I had chills during it. We have this shot and she keeps the camera on Jim Brown, Aldous Hodge's face. And he's in the other room, but you hear the conversation taking place between Cassius Clay and Malcolm X. And what you hear is you hear Malcolm X saying all that time you spent on the road entertaining the children of bigots. And you just see this feeling register in Aldous Hodge's eyes because even though this isn't supposed to be directed at this character, her direction shows you that, wait a second, like this also applies to him as someone who's in the NFL. He's doing the exact same thing, right? As a black football player, like entertaining these white people in the stands. So it adds this new element to the story that I think in the play, it would be really hard to show little things like that. And just the way that she moves the camera, she has a really impressive tracking shot that I really liked. Mm -hmm. She'll like juxtapose different shots. Like there's this one part where she shows them meditating in the room and then shows the pool outside. So she kind of creates this really interesting juxtaposition between an inner world and an outer world that I really liked. I like play adaptations. I'm not saying that I don't, but it did feel like an elevated version of one to me. I totally agree. I love the title card where it's Cassius in the pool. I love the meditating sequence. I think that's also another aspect that really isn't shown in Hollywood. And it's a little moment between Malcolm and Cassius, but it shows the power that they were feeling together and what inspired them. And I do have to mention how... Jim Brown was playing for the Cleveland Browns at the time before he quit the NFL, which is just insane. Look at you mentioning sports. (laughs) I was pretty sure he played for the Browns, but I had to look that up before. (laughs) (laughs) We have so many movies this year, like Best Picture nominees that mention Ohio or like Oscar adjacent movies that mention Ohio or take place in Ohio. It's kind of odd. And there's one to come. Don't worry. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yep, one more. (laughs) One thing I really like about One Night in Miami and Judas and the Black Messiah is that they are both, I would say, non-traditional biopics, 
right? Like they could function as biopics of these characters. And I think Judas and the Black Messiah does that more so, but they tackle material about people that we know or people that we should know, but maybe didn't beforehand. And they do it in ways that are so different than traditional biopics that we see come award season. And I think that's partly due to there being just such strong performances across the board and mm-hmm. multiple people, you know, usually biopics are, you have Malcolm X when Denzel Washington played the titular role, but it's really just him and it's his story. But these two films in particular are showcasing multiple people and their depths, which I think is great that we get to see so many different people and learn about them because it was really insightful for me. Did you have a favorite performance in One Night in Miami, one that stood out to you? I think with the awards conversation, most people are saying Leslie Odom Jr., but I would probably say Kingsley Benadire is the one who like fully transformed into his role. And Mm -hmm. that I think went into his process and hearing in different interviews of how he had actually been up for a role of Muhammad Ali beforehand and then he switched roles and played Malcolm X here so he had so much research that had gone into these characters I think he was able to embody him that much better and I think among all of the Gotham award winners he was the best and I really hope he keeps continuing and making films like this and performances. I would agree he was the standout for me and I think it's because he had such a difficult role to tackle. The first part of that is because Denzel, like you mentioned, has played Malcolm X in an epic version of the film, right? It's three hours long. He is the main performance of the entire movie and he does an incredible job. So I think that is just such a high bar to clear. And Kingsley Benadire doesn't play a caricature of the character. It doesn't feel like some cartoonish impression it feels lived in and the performance is so layered. I was really impressed by all of them, honestly. Leslie Odom Jr., I do think, is deserving of the awards attention that he's getting. Sam Cooke is also a very challenging part, I can imagine, like one of the greatest singers of all time. And, you know, yes, he sounds like Leslie Odom Jr. when he's singing, but I can't complain about that. I'm not going to. (laughs) Yeah, the vocals in this film are incredible i really liked every time he sang the tracking shot which i'm assuming you were referencing from the concert sequence Mm -hmm. was great but going back to kingsley i think what was so great about his role is that he was able to showcase these really minute feelings that malcolm x would have had at the time like you know it was really his instilled paranoia about the people around him the white people outside of the hotel and I mean he wasn't wrong about that and then the really short conversation with his wife and his daughter and then towards the end what happens to the family and him having to act not only as this huge public figure but also as a dad and a husband Mm -hmm. at home and being so protective and I think that's why I loved him so much and the fact that he's British and I had zero idea this entire time. I didn't know that until now. So good at at his dialect. So wow. (laughs) This is also so crazy because I just watched the Mauritanian last week, and Benedict Cumberbatch is also British, and his American accent is 
atrocious. Terrible. (laughs) So bad. And I was like, usually British actors are much better at doing American accents than American actors are doing British accents. I found, I don't know why. (laughs) Oh, I did. Okay. I did know he was British because he's in Peaky Blinders. Okay. Okay. I totally (laughs) forgot about that though. That's so funny. Didn't he also play Obama? Yeah. That was the Comey role. Yes. That show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like we're going to see a lot of him now, which mm-hmm. is really cool. Definitely. So Aldous Hodge, who plays Jim Brown, I don't think he has as much to chew on dialogue-wise as the others do, but I still think he had a great performance. The last time I saw him also was in The Invisible Man, which he was really good oh, in that, yeah. too. Mm-hmm. He's really good. And Eli Gorey is Cassius Clay. I think, you know, we've had Will Smith play Muhammad Ali and Ali... And sometimes Mm -hmm. athletes in movies, they don't feel like real people all the time. They feel almost just like these heroic characters that feel fully fictional, even though they're real people. I feel like that's just how they're portrayed in films. But this performance by Eli Gorey, I thought was also just really strong. He made you really feel the struggle of fame and finding yourself and him just growing as a person and as an athlete, which I thought, again testament to the writing and the acting but also to regina's direction to see that and to just kind of let them go and let them talk one other thing that really astonished me about these two movies and in one night in miami in particular is how cassius clay was 21 and 22 at the time which is incredible to have accomplished this feat and be going through all of this fame and fortune at the time i mean thinking back it's like now we have like disney teen stars to compare this to and they're like crazy lives that they have afterwards but I can't imagine being 21 and going through all this so I think he does a good job of showing that like you've said and then I will say in my ignorance I had no clue before this movie that Cassius Clay was Muhammad Ali I didn't know (laughs) that his transition to becoming Muslim was his name change I like the way that Regina King weaves in these really important discussions and discoveries of identity and how multifaceted that is and especially for Cassius Clay being so young like you mentioned and how his conversation with Malcolm X now I need to look up how fictional this is because I know this is a fictionalized story but the decision to tell the story in the way that these types of conversations possibly led him to Mm -hmm. become Muslim and change his name, I thought was really cool. I think to some extent it was a real night that happened, but a lot of the dialogue was probably inspired Mm by what each of the people were going through at the time. So I think it's safe to say we both really liked One Night in Miami. If you could give this movie one Oscar, what would you give it? I think I'd give it to Regina. I've been rooting for her to be a part of the conversation this whole season, and I'm glad Mm -hmm. that she's still up there what would you give it to if we could do this thing where we give out like multiple if it doesn't mean like someone else doesn't get it i would absolutely give the oscar to regina king i think the direction is the strongest part of the movie so Mm -hmm. she would be my winner i think so in terms of what we think would actually happen how do you feel this movie is going to do with award season Mm. with the oscars golden globes everything Yeah, so Golden Globes, just a refresher, it was nominated for three Golden Globes, and then for SAG, it got two nominations. I think it will be nominated for Best Picture. For Regina King, I'm not sure if she'll get nominated, 
I'm rooting for her. I really hope that she does. Mm -hmm. I think that thinking about the director's branch is tricky because throughout history, the actor turned director has been celebrated very differently by this branch. Like if we look back, Warren Beatty, Kevin Costner, Robert Redford, like they were all celebrated. But in more recent history, it hasn't gone that way necessarily. So like Ben Affleck for Argo didn't get in. Bradley Cooper for A Star is Born didn't get in. But you could say Greta Gerwig is also an actor turned director and she got in. So it's a little more up in the air. I do think that Regina King is loved and adored by the industry, which Mm -hmm. is great. She already has an Oscar. So I think there's definitely a possibility. I just wonder if the director's branch will do it or if they'll go for someone more off the wall. As long as it's not Paul Greengrass, I think we have a couple other good options. <laughs> I mean, if it doesn't go to Regina, is it going to Emerald Fennell or Spike Lee? I feel like those are also very risky choices, too. Yeah. I mean, the only two directors I have, like, in-in at the moment are Chloe Zhao and David Fincher. Mm-hmm. Like, I can see, I mean, Aaron Sorkin, I can see a world where he's like Martin McDonough and doesn't get in again with a three billboards comparison. Or, you know, maybe he's like Joker and gets in like Todd Phillips did. So who really knows there? But I think he's more up in the air. Emerald Fennell, I think, doesn't have as good of a chance as Regina King at getting in with the Academy, mm-hmm. especially since she's much more of a newcomer and also again an actor writer turned director paul greengrass i think you like might have to worry about but not too much (laughs) we'll see i was thinking maybe i know you said spike lee i think that one i'm just curious to see what will happen with dga i could also see them going for like a lee isaac chung for minari they seem to like minari Mm -hmm. so that could happen but I'll probably end up putting Regina King in my predictions, but I won't be shocked if they leave her out, but I will be disappointed. How do you feel about its awards chances? It's slated to win for song, right? That category, man. I. (laughs) (laughs) So they're all kind of like, and we'll get to this when we get to the short list, but they're all kind of like motivational poster titles that I get confused. It's like, speak now, hear my voice. (laughs) fight for you oh my god that's so true (laughs) (laughs) but i think you know just having leslie in there and the way that it plays at the end of the film you know it is an end credit song like most of them are but i would consider it to be the front runner so just in one final little segment here if you loved one night in miami if you wanted to learn more there are a lot of good films out there to watch some we've already mentioned Malcolm X by Spike Lee, also Mo Betta Blues by Spike. He just has all of his filmography really touches on certain aspects, and we'll talk about him later again. Ali, you mentioned, and I think another recent one that talks about Sam Cooke more is called Remastered, The Two Killings of Sam Cooke, which is on Netflix. So if you want to watch One Night in Miami or rewatch it, it's on Amazon Prime. Next up, we'll be talking about Judas and the Black Messiah. Deputy Chairman Fred Hampton of the Illinois Black Panther Party. Repeat after me. I will learn all that I can. I These ain't no terrorists. You can murder a liberator, but you can't murder liberation. You can murder a revolutionary, but you can't murder revolution. And you can murder a freedom fighter, but you can't murder freedom.
So Judas and the Black Messiah is a story about Fred Hampton, chair of the Illinois Black Panther Party, and his faithful betrayal by FBI informant William O'Neill. It's directed by Shaka King and produced by Ryan Coogler, who directed Black Panther. It stars Daniel Kaluuya, Lakeith Stanfield, Dominique Fishback, and Jesse Plemons. What were your thoughts about Judas and the Black Messiah? Because you saw this as a part of Sundance, right? Yeah, so I watched this at its world premiere for Sundance, which was really fun. You know, I pretended I was at the movie theater as best I could. I, like, turned off all the lights in my apartment, made popcorn and everything. (laughs) And it did not disappoint. I really, really liked it a lot. If you've been listening to this podcast, you know I love, love 70s dramas. And this, to me, had that fierce unrelenting 70s feel you could feel the Lumet Scorsese influence I think kind of jumping off the screen it has a really propulsive narrative that keeps its message going throughout and it's anchored by some incredible performances I think chief among them is Daniel Kaluuya as Fred Hampton we will Mm -hmm. talk more about him but those are my early thoughts I think that It's one that I wish came out earlier in the year so it would have more of a place in the awards conversation because I think it might be hurting because it's a late breaker, but I thought it was a really, just a really entertaining, important film. What did you think of it? I agree. I think it's such an impactful, powerful telling story that again, I didn't know much about. Mm-hmm. And I think it's made incredibly well. So many sequences that really grab you. And mm-hmm. I think all of the performances here, again, are just so strong for better or worse. And again, it just speaks of the moment that I think America particularly is going through. And the message of Black Lives Matter that really strengthened in 2020 really speaks in this film. And I think reading about the dialogue that studio and actors had together and with the family, I think made this such important conversation. So what were some of your favorite parts of the movie? So I think aside from like specific scenes, which I can get into, one thing I really liked was just Shaka King's direction. I felt like he just had a really clear, crystallized point of view. There's not one answer or one message. And I think he does a really great job of showing the internal struggle of these characters and what they're going through, particularly Lakeith, who plays Bill O'Neill, and what he's doing in deceiving the Black Panther Party, but also integrating into it. I think there's a lot to be said about racial injustice, about government corruption, about these relationships, and then what the Black Panther Party was also trying to do that I don't feel is told about often, about how they were providing food and free housing and all of these things that they capture in the film. And Shaka did tackle all of these things so well. I will say the only part that peeved me the whole time (laughs) was Martin Sheen and that awful prosthetic. Oh, Oh, yeah. When I saw that, I like let out a little shriek. Well, it's because his voice is so recognizable and Mm -hmm. the face wasn't. And it was so disjointed to me. I agree. I read Adam Naiman's review in The Ringer and he pointed out that it's actually just it's really kind of brilliant, dark casting because he's Jed Bartlett in The West Wing, who's this Democratic hero Mm. 
that a lot of white liberals love. It's this kind of brilliant subversion of expectations, but the prosthetics really did throw me. (laughs) I would say my only complaint of the movie, which you're going to hate this so much. (laughs) I wish it was like 30 minutes longer. Oh, wow. Okay. I think that it would have been even better if it was as long as some of those 70s thrillers or dramas. I think I needed some more time with some of the characters, especially Lakeith Stanfield. Because I feel like in stories with a Judas figure, the Judas figure is always the most interesting. And I think I needed a little more time with him or a little more time with the other members of the Black Panther Party for it Mm -hmm. to fully get to the potential that I wanted to see the film get to, but that is a very small thing at the end of the day. I think it's a good runtime. It actually feels like it captures everything well, but I do agree that there's so much more depth to be seen in all of these characters. Uh Even in the one article I read on Deadline about this film, it talks about Lakeith and not only how seriously he took this role, but how he embodied this character so well. He was shaking during certain scenes. He had to be taken to the hospital because he had such high blood pressure. On the 50th anniversary of the day that Fred Hampton was murdered, they were actually shooting those final sequences as well. Oh, wow. Daniel Kaluuya said, to be doing that scene on that day, it was really, really, really heavy. And everyone felt it. Even the stuff I was saying in that scene, the decision he makes in that scene to say on that day was really heavy. I think if I did it another day, I wouldn't be able to do it like I did. And then on the other hand, Lakeith was found throwing up, shaking, crying on this day. So I can't imagine what it was like to be on set. And Shaka, I think Ryan spoke as well. And there was this communal spirit that happened that made it really special. But to hear about these characters and actors portraying something so well, I think just speaks to how well the film turned out. Wow, yeah, that's intense. And you really can feel that intensity coming from these performances. I think that Daniel Kaluuya is, I mean, just extraordinary in this role. Mm -hmm. The whole time, you're just, I think that, Like, he's so charismatic in this movie that when he's not on screen, I kept just saying to myself, like, where is he? Like, I I just, I need him to be back. I wanted more of him. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I said this when I watched it, and it felt kind of like hyperbole when I said it, but I actually have landed on it, and I'm like, no, I really do feel this way. I think Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield are the closest thing we have to Pacino and De Niro in our generation. I like that. Because I think you have Daniel Kaluuya, who would be the Pacino. He's so charismatic. He's a magnetic field for everyone that is on screen with him and for the viewers watching at home. And then you have Lakeith Stanfield, who has this performance that's really layered and really internal. And you don't really realize what he's doing until maybe 45 minutes have passed after you've seen the film and you just Mm -hmm. are only thinking about him. So the dynamic that they have when they're together on screen and the types of performers that they are, I really do think like they are those types of talents that we have. And it's, Mm -hmm. we're just so lucky to be able to see them in anything. And I think both of them are always just incredible actors. Daniel Kaluuya can do anything, you know, He was nominated for Get Out. And I'll mention another Lakeith film 
in a bit here as well. But Daniel in particular, I feel every time he's on the screen, he's such a commanding force. Talk about British people who have great American accents. (laughs) Well, I was just going to say, I think comparing him to Kingsley, his dictation is just phenomenal. And he has so many lines, but he does everything so well. If we want to talk about some favorite scenes, I think the rally was my favorite. It's kind of this turning point. It's just so chilling to watch. And there's Mm -hmm. so much happening. The direction of the editing is done super well. And just to hear Daniel in this moment, I could watch this on repeat. That moment was so, oh my gosh, I had chills the entire time. He was so good in it. And I read too, so he did an interview with Entertainment Weekly and he, I guess, went to an opera coach for training to learn how to reproduce Fred Hampton's vocal style because Mm -hmm. he felt like it had a kind of musical cadence (laughs) when he would watch speeches from him. And he totally replicates that. And it's so cool. I love learning when actors do things like that that Mm -hmm. I would never think of. Whether the camera's far away from him and you get shots of the crowd or the camera's close up on him, you just feel that energy and you can't help but think to yourself and I know like yes we have a podcast about the Oscars and yes I will say like sometimes the Oscars are important but it was a scene when where I was just like this man needs an Oscar (laughs) (laughs) I also really loved Dominique Fishback's performance I thought that she played really well off of Daniel Kaluuya her performance had so much emotional depth to it And her face is one that could carry the weight of those extreme close-ups that Shaka King was doing, where you Mm -hmm. really could just feel every emotion that she was trying to convey, even those that were, you know, several layers under what might have been on her face. And I thought that was just really tremendous acting. And I think, again, maybe this is a good place to get into awards conversation Mm -hmm. and what a normal year would look like for this. (laughs) Like you mentioned earlier, I think if this had come out in December even, mm-hmm. I feel like it could have had such strong momentum. And I know a lot of press had seen it like mm-hmm. December, January-ish, and everything was just so strong. So I think it could have had more of a best picture, maybe even like a potential for director. I don't think mm-hmm. that's going to happen. And then all of the acting nominees, I wonder if Lakeith would have even... So was he lead? Yes. So okay. he was lead and Daniel Kaluuya is supporting. supporting. But their screen time is about equivalent. And I personally view Daniel Kaluuya as the lead in this movie. I <laughs> do feel like it's slight category fraud. <laughs> he is the lead person, but I understand that he's supporting actor because he is gone for a lot of the film. And you do mm-hmm. feel it. It's like, where is he? Why are we not seeing yeah. him? <laughs> And I think that speaks to the fact that he was put in prison so easily and Mm -hmm. almost disregarded for Mm -hmm. what was it like not paying for ice cream or something that they basically Mm -hmm. made up, which is just so infuriating. What other nominations do you feel like it could get come Oscars? I started thinking about this when I talked about Dominique Fishback, because I think in a normal year, she could totally make a push and Warner Brothers could definitely give her a campaign for Best Supporting Actress. I thought she was great. And this year especially, like that field is, it's not stacked. 
where she could find a place to get in. But I do worry that because it is such a late breaker that it doesn't have a lot of awards potential, even though it is the type of film that should get nominated for Best Picture. I think Shaka King should be in consideration for Best Director. I think Lakeith Stanfield should be in consideration too. I think it has the potential. I also thought the cinematography was great. The score, like there are definitely really great elements to the film, but I'm worried that Daniel Kaluuya really is its only hope. It'll likely be up for song too, right? Oh, right. But I feel like it does have a good potential for picture. And I think it's cusp for cinematography. I remember when I first started the movie, I just felt so much anticipation and I was Mm -hmm. really excited to see what was coming. I think that's Mm -hmm. something I want in a best picture contender. So I think that definitely speaks to its potential there. Daniel Kaluuya was nominated for SAG and Golden Globe. Do you think that he is a shoo-in? Do you think he's on the bubble? I see him getting in for sure. Okay. And I honestly would like to see him win over Leslie or Sasha. Yeah. (laughs) It's kind of frustrating, but I do really think he'll get in in supporting actor. I think he is a great shot at getting in. I struggle calling anybody a lock, but I think he's close to one. And his Mm -hmm. performance is one that like he should win. He's just wonderful in the movie. I think it's time since we're talking about awards to talk about trial of the Chicago seven a little bit, because there are some, um, there's some overlap. I will say it is light. (laughs) I read in slate Karen Hahn, who's a critic there in her review of Judas and the black Messiah. She says this movie offers a powerful corrective to the trial of the Chicago seven. And What Mm -hmm. she claims, which I totally agree with, is that Sorkin decides that he's going to place Fred Hampton's assassination kind of, you know, off to the side. And instead, he decides to quite shamelessly, you know, in the courtroom, have this very dramatic scene where Bobby Seale is bound and gagged, which Yaya gives a really powerful performance in that moment. But she shares that she felt it was, you know, mostly done to emphasize the guilt and the outrage of the white people in the group. And this movie does the opposite of that. And so if you want a film that is about this time period, about the Black Panthers, Judas and the Black Messiah is the one to watch, not Trial of the Chicago 7. But as things go with the Academy, Trial of the Chicago 7 will be the one that we are talking about until the Oscars. My memory of trial has only diminished ever since i've seen it and it's movies like this that make you go i'm not really surprised and it just kind of disappointing and i think this speaks to how small it considers this role but i didn't even remember fred hampton being in trial but he is he's played by calvin harrison jr Oh, from who will Loose know from... and Waves. Yes, yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> so I need to go back and watch Trial to see how they depict him, but I'm... It's on your long list of films to revisit. <laughs> <laughs> Something I don't really want to do but need to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think what really stands out when you're comparing Shaka King's direction to Aaron Sorkin's direction and the stories that they're choosing to tell, it does feel like Aaron Sorkin is clinging to the present moment in a way that is okay this is the time that I need to tell this story because 
people are paying attention, the world is changing, and this is the perfect time to tell the story. When Shaka King, I feel, is really committed to the story for the long haul and showing mm-hmm. this generational trauma, showing that things haven't changed. And yes, the story is more impactful today coming off of 2020, but that's not why he's telling the story. He's committed to sharing the stories of these characters, not seizing a moment. So if you could give this movie one Oscar, I feel like we both kind of already shared what we would do. (laughs) What would you give it? Definitely Daniel Kaluuya. Yeah. Is it the same? (laughs) For sure. (laughs) Easy. So I'm hoping come nomination day in, what is it, like three, four weeks? As of recording, a month away from tomorrow. Wow. I mean, I would hope for at least three and then any more nominations I would just be ecstatic with. So. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like... Could it be a phantom thread? That's what people keep saying and comparing it to. I'm dubious of that because that was PTA and Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> but I would love for it to get the six nomination haul that Phantom Thread did that morning. We will see. I think in comparing it to other movies, it was interesting reading about how Shaka really wanted to make this almost as The Departed, which mm-hmm. was Scorsese's endeavor of an informant situation. And another one that... I know you appreciated was The Conformist as well. We love The Conformist. (laughs) You can definitely see that in the William O'Neill character. I think that's where you see the comparisons to The Conformist. So some more movies to watch. If you enjoy this, if you want to learn more about this history, about the Black Panther Party, the Black Power mixtape, 1967 and 1975. These are all documentaries that I'm going to mention. And I remember this because it has Angela Davis on the poster. Another one would be The Murder of Fred Hampton, which was a 1971 talk, and All Power to the People, which was from 1996. Another one that I think will be a great watch, this is from 2020. I actually haven't seen this. I read about it and now really want to watch it, but it's a documentary called MLK FBI, and it is all about... The FBI just trying to destroy and discredit anything that Martin Luther King Jr. did. I think a very good um, double bill with Judas and the Black Messiah. Quickly, as you mentioned the FBI, I think something else I read about what was going on is that they had many informants. Bill O'Neill wasn't the only one here. Mm -hmm. I didn't know this beforehand. So I think that speaks to their power. And the government and just wanting to destroy all these people about how people from the Black Panther Party are still in prison today. And then along with that, I mentioned Martin Sheen, but also Jesse Plemons, who is also chilling and that he like plays this facade of this good cop. But deep down, he's just as nasty and spiteful as any of the other white government personnel that are shown on screen. Mm -hmm. And that that rally in the middle of the film I talked about was just such a turning point in that he kind of doubled down on how he treated Bill and how he Mm -hmm. pursued ending, assassinating, murdering these people. Yeah, and we didn't talk about Jesse Plemons, but he is really, like you said, chilling in this movie. I think that it's kind of funny. He's become this go-to actor that directors can just put in their movie for this type of role, and he's convincingly good at it. (laughs) To a point that's a little scary. But another thing I think that's that's really good about this movie is that it drops you in a really in a specific moment. So you don't get a lot of backstory. I think that that might be hard for 
some viewers, but I think I like how it drops you in a really particular moment in the history of the party. Mm-hmm. It illuminates the fear that an organization like the FBI and police have of someone based solely on their potential, right? Like the idea that they think that this person is dangerous because of what could come in the future and not because of the things that they've already done is Mm -hmm. a searing indictment of that system. And I thought it worked really well in the film. Yeah, I agree. Another option, um, something you can check out if you want to hear more from Lakeith Stanfield and Daniel Kaluuya on the Higher Learning podcast with Van Lathan and Rachel Lindsay. If you've watched The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, that's probably where you know Rachel Lindsay from. But they actually interview Lakeith and Daniel on their podcast. And it's super interesting. And there's another podcast actually called Judas and the Black Messiah podcast where there's a lot more historical context from Fred Hampton Jr. and the members of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party. All right. So now we're going to share five films each that we really love that were made by black filmmakers. So the first one on my list is Daughters of the Dust by Julie Dash. And this film is available now to watch on the Criterion channel. Julie Dash is, I think, just an essential director. And this film is just so poetic. It's visually stunning. The cinematography is beautiful. And it kind of taps into this magical realism element, which I really like. One that I watched recently that I really, really liked, I think channels some of these themes and ideas that we've talked about in this podcast specifically is Boys in the Hood, which was made by John Singleton back in 1991. So another 30 year anniversary. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This was so timely, could have been made within that 30 year time frame and still been applicable today. And it is. And all of the acting is great. The cast is just phenomenal. The interesting bit about this is that it was nominated for two Oscars for Best Writing and Best Director. And this is still today the youngest director nomination for John Singleton. He was 24 at the time, which was... Oh my God, that's crazy. Right? Wow. Imagine where you would be if you were nominated for Best Director At 24? (laughs) (laughs) And this was more than two and a half years younger than... Orson Welles was when he made Citizen Kane. Wow. (laughs) And funnily enough that the current holder for youngest director, do you know who this is? No. So the youngest winning best director is Damien Chazelle for La La Land. Oh, yes. Okay. I definitely did know this (laughs) at one point and just... I think because sometimes in my brain, I think that Barry won for Moonlight, but I forgot Ugh. that it was this. It was split. He was 34 at the time, which was 10 years older. So wow. good for John. What's your next pick? That's a great segue into my next pick, which is <laughs> If Beale Street Could Talk. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Directed by Barry Jenkins. So the reason I picked this one, I obviously love Moonlight, but I think that Moonlight is definitely the film that people think of when they think of Barry Jenkins. And Mm -hmm. If Beale Street Could Talk is just so stunningly beautiful. The incredible Nicholas Bertel score. Barry Jenkins just has so much empathy and care for his characters. 
when he's telling a story. And I think that, you know, I can't imagine how hard it would be to adapt a James Baldwin novel into a film, but he does such a great job. It also just has great cinematography by James Laxton, who's Mm -hmm. a frequent collaborator of Barry. And if you want to check this one out, you can watch it. I believe it's on Hulu or you can rent it on Prime, iTunes, anywhere like that. Moonlight is an easy shoe in for any one of these lists because it is just such an important 21st century picture to be made. And there's a line in Malcolm and Marie where (laughs) John David Washington is ranting. I mean, he has this minutes long rant about (laughs) filmmakers in Hollywood, which is impressive. But well, there's actually two. He mentions early on how they were comparing him to become the next Barry Barry Jenkins. But then later on, he says that Freudian slip. You almost had a Barry Levinson. (laughs) (laughs) No, I was going to say Barry Lyndon. (laughs) (laughs) yeah this shouldn't have happened (laughs) (laughs) but how later on he says you know is moonlight this great movie because barry jenkins is straight but he was telling his gay story it was just like uh, i don't know about the erasure of terrell alvin mccraney there (laughs) anyway (laughs) But on another note, Ashton Sanders, who is Chiron in Moonlight, was in Judas and the Black Messiah, too. So it was really cool seeing him. But my next pick is going to be Spike Lee, who has made so many great films throughout his career. But I think two here, I mean, everybody knows him for Do the Right Thing. I think that's his masterpiece. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Another line in Malcolm and Marie about how... (laughs) They say he made this before politics became popular, which may be true, but it is still an incredible film that is timely. We've actually talked about this on the pod before as well. Mm -hmm. And another one that fits that was Oscar nominated was Black Klansman from 2018. And that's just an incredible story and one that Spike won his Oscar for, for writing. Yeah. We talked a lot about Spike Lee on our Defy Bloods episode, so... If you want to listen to us talk about more Spike Lee movies, we definitely go into them there. <laughs> I think Black Klansman's actually a good double feature with Judas and the Black Messiah, too. Mm-hmm. So what is your next pick? So my next pick, I mentioned James Baldwin already, but my next pick was actually nominated for Best Documentary, and that is I Am Not Your Negro. It's directed by Raul Peck. It is just an incredible documentary. James Baldwin should be read in more American high schools, but I fear he is not. Mm -hmm. I personally didn't read James Baldwin until college. And I mean, his writing is just so beautiful. I read Giovanni's Room last year and treated it as some English class. I was just like highlighting and underlining lines Mm -hmm. so often. Yeah, it was amazing. I loved his prose. So this documentary uses Baldwin's words, which... It's such a cool documentary to be able to do that. And it talks about the lives of key black figures in American history. So it's definitely, I think, a good one to check out. I watched it a few years ago, but I recently watched it again on Canopy. So I know we've talked about Canopy before, but if you have Canopy, it's completely free. Yeah, apparently, according to Letterboxd, it's on Amazon Prime, Canopy, Hulu, Netflix, and then free on Vudu, Tubi TV, and Hoopla. So... 
It is literally everywhere. Go see it. It's incredible. I loved having Baldwin's speech in it. It is very dense, but I think what he packs into his language is really profound. So I guess going into my next pick, I will talk about a couple documentaries here. I know I'm cheating a little bit, but two of my favorites. I was going to say. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I cannot contain this to five movies. It's fine. If I had to pick one, it would have to be 13th, which is Ava DuVernay's documentary about the prison system and the racial injustice happening there. Mm -hmm. 13th relating to the 13th Amendment. I think, again, a perfect documentary. Another one that I really like, and this is a long one, but it's amazing, is... OJ Made in America, which actually won Best Documentary Feature at the Oscars in 2017. It is really good. And I will say I liked this so much, I still haven't watched the American Crime Story version of The People versus OJ Simpson because I feel like I learned so much about the trial and everything that was happening mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah. I haven't found a purpose for a fictionalized Ryan Murphy version. I also haven't. I have not watched that (laughs) version of it. So my fourth one is Eve's Bayou. It was directed by Cassie Lemons. And she actually won an Indie Spirit Award for this for Best First Feature. And it's a really beautiful film. It has this Southern Gothic feel. It also feels like a melodrama. It's very haunting. And I highly recommend it. I actually watched it for the first time last year. And it was one where I didn't really know much about it going into it, but the second it started, and I'm not going to spoil what the opening line is, but the second I heard that, I was like, okay, I'm I'm in it. I'm invested. This is really cool. It looks like you can watch it now on Hulu, Prime, Epics, which I actually just got for a free trial to watch St. Maud. <laughs> So my next pick is going to be Drumline. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Which was so fun to revisit. It just brought back an incredible amount of nostalgia having watched this when I was, I guess, like 11 or 12, which is Mm -hmm. crazy. This is just uh, maybe being in marching band made me love this so much. But You were in marching band? Yeah, of course. I did not know that. Oh my god. Like <laughs> hearing all the cadences and the songs and watching them do these formations on the field just brought back so much from high school and this being one of the first CDs I owned as well. <laughs> this is like such a nerdy moment. <laughs> I love this so much. <laughs> but Zoe Saldana in here, Nick Cannon obviously, Orlando Jones. Just across the board, amazing. No, I want to watch it. I haven't seen it in a long time, maybe since high school. Very cheesy, but just a fun watch. It's on HBO Max, actually. Oh, cool. Yeah. Perfect. I will watch it. Okay, so my last pick is Ganja and Hess. Have you seen this before? I haven't seen three of these that you mentioned. It was directed by Bill Gunn. And again, I don't want to give too much away, but it is this experimental art house horror movie about black vampires. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I watched it actually as part of the Criterion 70s horror series that was going on last fall. You can watch it on Hulu now if you're curious, but I think it's really cool because 
a lot of times I feel like art house horror is a space that is dominated by these white auteurs. And Mm -hmm. this to me is just a really cool example of that genre. And it really loves playing outside of the lines. It's really, really cool. Okay. So if you're in the mood for an out there horror movie, check it out. So my final pick is I really want to put Girls Trip in here. I think that's just such a fun movie. I love Girls Trip. Yeah, I think super rewatchable, great cast, well-directed, but I am going to put in Sorry to Bother You here. Oh my God. Which is also out there. It's Mm -hmm. a great dark comedy satire. I mean, yes, there is that man who we shall not mention in it as well, but... There also is Steven Yoon in here. Oh, you're right. But Lakeith Stanfield and Tessa Thompson are in the lead roles. And it's just a wacky story, but it brings it back through these themes and metaphors that we've kind of all been talking about this whole episode. And it's, I think, really well done. It's a wild ride. I remember when I saw it in theaters, just the whole entire time, just lots of jaw-dropping moments throughout Mm -hmm. (laughs) the whole thing. And obviously, like, this just scratched the surface. We each named a couple, but there are so many great films out there to check out. This year, though, definitely watch One Night in Miami and Judas and the Black Messiah. Both great films. Mm -hmm. Both in the awards conversation. So hopefully we will talk about them more as the season progresses. But again, you can watch Judas and the Black Messiah now on HBO Max and One Night in Miami on Prime. So next week on Oscar Wilde, we will be releasing two episodes talking about some of the nine shortlist categories and then also giving our Golden Globes predictions, which I cannot believe they're already here. We will be going category by category, breaking everything down. I think it's going to be chaotic. Yeah. I think the shortlist breakdown that we're doing will be kind of like a nice lead in to what will be full chaos on the Golden Globes predictions episode. I am curious how many we'll agree on and just in anticipating what could go right or wrong at the Golden Globes and of course what that means for the Oscars. And I know we're not going to talk about the TV nominations, but I feel like those are even crazier. I can't wait. (laughs) So thanks everyone for listening. We will see you next time. Stay safe and wear your masks. Thanks for listening, everybody. Again, feel free to submit suggestions to us at Oscar Wilde Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. Stay safe and wear your masks.